The following is a sermon by Pastor Jordan Rogers. You can find sermon videos at www.youtube.com slash Jordan Neal Rogers. Thank you for listening today. This morning we're in Acts chapter 4, beginning there in verse 23 down through 31. I found it kind of comical uh, at my house the last week and a half or two weeks or so. Um, I introduced my two sons, Josiah and Eli. Eli is five and Josiah is seven. But I introduced them to a video game that I used to play when I was in late junior high and in high school. We used to play this game all the time. Love the game. It's pretty fun. So we introduced them to this game. And uh, really, the, the way that the game works is you get to uh, you get to pick your, your various Nintendo characters. You have about 30 of them that you can choose from. You pick whichever Nintendo character you want to be or superhero, comic book hero, whatever. You pick that person, and then you put them in an arena, and they fight each other. So what we've noticed, the boys like to fight each other anyway, but when we let them use a, use a controller to do it in the virtual world, we've noticed that it cuts down on the bruises and the cuts and the actual fights in the house because they just take it out on virtual self, okay? And, so, uh, and to say that my house has gotten any more quiet would be an abject lie. Because if anything, it has encouraged their screaming and their yelling and their fists pumping. And uh, they just get really, really into it. And so they, they pick their character, they get in the arena, and they start to battle each other. And they're doing their special moves that are unique to each character. And uh, I hear it from both of the boys. They say it to one another. And whenever I hear this particular uh, phrase or something like it, I just stop it. I pause the game and I say, no, we're going to talk about this for a second. And so the, the, the phrase will go something like this. Eli will, will look at Josiah and say, Josiah, I don't like that move. You can't do that move to me. Don't do it anymore. It's like that's the point of the game. He's supposed to do the move and he's supposed to knock you out of the arena and he wins. And so I pause the game and I say, no. He doesn't need to quit doing the move. You need to get better at what you're doing. Uh, that, that's what needs to happen. You don't need to make things easier. That's not what we're after. But you know, their response to the difficulty of the game a lot of times is the way we respond to difficulty in life. Well, I don't like that. You just need to stop that. Wouldn't that be nice if we had that easy button we could push? Okay, you, you go to work and there's a very difficult person and you press the easy button and they're gone. <laughs> Not speaking about people here at the church. I love everyone that works here at the church, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Press that easy button, they're gone. Poof, problem solved. You're having financial difficulties, the bank account looks a little low and you hit that easy button and it ticks up and hey, everything is great. And a lot of times that's what we ask of God. God, would you make things easier for me? Would you make my path easier? Would you give me a little bit more ease of access, a little bit more comfort? That's what, we, that's what we pray for. I think most of the time we are praying for the wrong thing. We have financial difficulties. We pray, Lord, would you increase my income? 
Maybe what we need to pray is not that the Lord would increase our income, but that the Lord would help us to reduce our spending. Lord, would you help me to decrease my covetousness? How often do we pray that? Maybe sometimes we'll pray, Lord, would you ease this load on me? Lord, would you lift this burden off me and ease this burden? When really, what we probably should be praying is not, Lord, lift this burden off me. What we should probably pray is, Lord, would you make my shoulders stronger? Would you make me able to walk through this instead of just pushing the easy button? I don't think God is, is real big on pushing the easy button for us. And we live in a very difficult world. We live in a world that opposes God, that opposes Jesus and the things that Jesus did and the message of the cross. They oppose that. And I want you to see this truth from this text because I think that this is the overarching truth of this entire text. If you want to write down this sentence, that would be very good. Take a pen and write down this sentence. In a world that opposes Jesus, God's solution is not ease. It is the boldness that comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit. In a world that opposes Jesus, God's solution is not ease. It is the boldness that comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit. You remember what has taken place thus far in these, those middle two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Peter and John on their way to the temple. They come across a man who's been crippled from his mother's womb. He's now 40 years old. They see this man, and Peter says, Rise up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and walk. And this man jumps up. He leaps. He begins running around praising God. Everyone in the temple knew this man. He had been there all his life. They recognize what God has done, and they all swarm to this man and to Peter and John. Peter and John find themselves there in the inside of the temple complex in a porch called Solomon's, Solomon's Portico, and they begin to preach. And they are preaching and they're saying, hey, y'all don't marvel, men of Israel, don't marvel as though Peter and John, as though myself and John, as though we healed this man according to any of our own power or piety. We have healed this man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's the one that has made this man rise up and walk, and there is salvation in no other name. There's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved than Jesus. And they proclaim the gospel to these crowds. And it says some 5,000 people, some 5,000 men were born again. They believed in the Lord Jesus that day and the church multiplied and grew through the preaching of the gospel. But you remember what took place right after that. The rulers of the temple, the temple guard, and the Sadducees, they rush upon Peter and John to see what the commotion is. They hear the name of Jesus, and you can imagine they were infuriated because those were the very rulers of the Jews that had put Jesus to death, not but a short time before that. And they just can't get this man, Jesus, quiet. They can't get people to quit talking about Jesus. So what do they do to Peter and John? They arrest them. They arrest them and they put them in prison that night. They bring them out of jail. They have their little meeting and, and they, they talk with one another and they say, you know what? We can't punish these people because all of the people believe. We can't, we can't punish Peter and John because all the people believe and they're gonna turn on us. So this is what we're gonna do. And they come out, they come to Peter and John and say, look, this is what needs to happen. We charge you, we make it a law, we make it a command for you to no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And you remember Peter's response. 
Peter says, hey, whether it's right for us to obey the words of men or the words of God, you can decide that for yourself. But as for us, we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. Peter says, we just can't shut up about Jesus. We've got to talk about Jesus, about what we have seen and heard. And I pray that that is our very response to opposition in this world, to people who would seek to silence the message of Jesus, that we would not shut up, that we would tell people what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection. And we would express to people. This is what Jesus has done in my life. He's changed my heart. He's made me a new person. He's forgiven me of my sins, and he has given me a hope that is greater than death. You ought not be quiet about that message. So Peter and John are arrested. They have been apprehended. They are uh, held by the rulers of the Jews, and that is where our text picks up. In chapter 4, beginning there in verse 23, it says, when they were released... I find that to be an interesting statement, when they were released. Because Peter and John had been arrested by these people who hated Jesus. They had been arrested by people who stood against the message of Jesus, against the person of Jesus. And yet when Peter and John are arrested and they are in, uh, they are in confinement and they are confronted about Jesus, it doesn't seem like Peter and John are in bondage at all. Peter and John have been arrested, and yet they are entirely free in Jesus. They sit there and they boldly proclaim the message of the cross to the very people who put Jesus on the cross. They had been arrested by men, but you know why they were free? They were free because they were captive to God. They only cared about God's opinion of them. They only cared about Jesus' opinion of them. I imagine that they remember the words of Jesus when he said there in Matthew 11 or 10, verse 28, he said, fear not those who can kill the body, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and spirit in hell. They fear Jesus. They are captive to the opinion of God alone. Therefore, they are free from the opinions of men. They are not in bondage to the opinions of what any person thinks or even does to them. They may have been arrested by men, but they were captive to the opinion of God. If you want to be free from the opinions of people, from the tyranny of other people's opinions, you have to submit yourself captive to God's opinion. What does God think of me? That is all that matters. You come to that point, you will be free from what other people think. So it says that when they were released, I kind of tend to think that they were really never captive in the first place. They had been captive to God. It says when they were released, they went to their friends. Who were their friends? It's the church. It's the apostles. They're going to their church. They had just been persecuted, arrested for preaching Jesus and for healing a crippled man. Who do they go to to tell about their troubles? They go to their church family. This is one of the greatest benefits of being a part of a church. Is you have friends who have become family in Jesus. And when you are hurting, when you go through difficulty, you don't have to ball up in some hole of isolation. You can go to those friends. And you can tell them what happened. And you know the result here? 
The result here is that the friends join together and they all pray together. A great source of encouragement. One of the greatest benefits of being a part of church. I would challenge you, don't just come to church services. Make your church your church family. Have relationships with people in the church. Be close to them. And when you have victories in life, share it with your church family. When you have defeats, share it with your church family. And they will surround you. They will encourage you. And they will build you up. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Remember, they told them, don't preach in the name of Jesus. Verse 24, let me ask you a question. What would you pray if, if you came out of that situation where you had just been arrested, the police came to your workplace, cuffed you in front of everyone you work with, and took you away, they bring you before a judge, and the judge says, everybody believes what you're saying, so I can't throw you in jail any longer. I can't penalize you, but I'm going to tell you, son... You better not speak the name of Jesus at your workplace anymore. What would we pray? We, see, we have restrictions like that on us. Don't talk about God and religion. Don't talk about Jesus in the workplace. Don't talk about Jesus in the school. And, and let me correct our thinking here. Because many times, what do we pray about that? We say, Lord... Would you please help us to elect officials who will go in, Senate and Congress and even to the presidency, elect officials who will go in and make laws that are favorable to religious freedom? What are we praying when we ask for that? We are praying for ease of access. We are praise, praying for comfort. We are praying for lack of punishment for doing the right thing. Is it wrong to pray for something like that? No, but I'll challenge you this morning, there is a better way. There is a much better way. Look at what these people pray. Look at what the apostles in the early church pray in verse 24. And when they heard it, when they heard of the persecution and oppression, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together, corporate prayer, lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Stop right there for a second. There's a few things that are very interesting about the beginning of that prayer. They say, Sovereign Lord. You know, there are two ways, uh, particularly in Greek, that you can say Lord. Many times in the New Testament, when you read the word Lord, uh, you talk about Lord Jesus, uh, Lord this and that. You use the word kurios, kurios. And it, it's really just a, res, it's a respectful designation of somebody that has authority over you. So if you have a centurion, he's a leader of a hundred troops. If you have a centurion, you know what those soldiers will call that commander? They might refer to him as kurios. They might refer to him as, as Lord. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is not kurios. It's the word despote. Despote. That's where we get our English word despot. See, there's a difference between a kurios and a despote. A kurios is a respectful designation for somebody who has authority over you. Maybe your boss at work. Okay, that's not wrong to call them sir, mister. 
you have authority over me, but you won't call that boss at work despote. Despote is in reference to somebody who has absolute authority over everything. That, in and of itself, is a unique title that belongs to God alone. That's why that word despote is translated sovereign Lord. It means you are master over everything, living and breathing and even the inanimate objects of the earth. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in them. What is their response to oppression and difficulty and persecution in the world? The first thing that they do is they acknowledge a theological fact. They acknowledge that while the world may oppose Jesus, the world belongs to Jesus. The war, everything in the world, everything in the universe belongs to God. No matter how tumultuous things might be, God's throne is not shaken. It all belongs to God, and that's immediately what the church does. They don't immediately go in and ask for a request. They don't ask for ease of access. They recognize that this world, with all of its difficulties, it belongs to God alone. He is sovereign Lord over everything that takes place. Can you imagine the courage and boldness that, makes, that wells up inside these people? This world is difficult, but this world belongs to the one that calls me son. This world belongs to my heavenly Father. He is despote over all things. He is the sovereign Lord. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You know something that is unique about Jesus as opposed to the gods of this world? You see, people who don't love Jesus, people who don't love Jesus, they, they all break the first two commandments of, of the Ten Commandments. They all worship another God, and they make a graven image after their own likeness. The gods of the world are the, are the creation or are the makings of the people who serve them. You hear people say things like this, well, my God would never send somebody to hell. Well, my God would never do this. My God would never say this. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible speaks for himself. Uh, the God of the Bible is God over all. He is sovereign Lord, whether you call him my God or not. See, the difference in the gods of the world and the God of the Bible, Jesus, is that the people who serve the gods of this world, they serve gods of their own making. But people who serve Jesus serve the God who made all things. There's a very big difference between the gods that we serve. The people of the world serve the gods of their stomach and their appetites. We serve the God who made the stomach, who made the persons, who made all peoples. No matter what troubles we face, God has made all people, all things everywhere, and he is sovereign Lord over everything. You'll see how this gives them courage to face persecution and oppression in this world. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now notice the way that the apostles characterized the words of David. The words of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now they're speaking about King David. You read about him in the books of Samuel and in First and Second Kings. You can read about him. 
David wrote the Psalms, many of the Psalms. In fact, Psalm chapter 2 was written by David. That's the, that's the passage that is quoted explicitly, Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2. And when the apostles acknowledge the writing of David, they say, yes, David wrote it, but who is it that inspired it? It's the Holy Spirit. See, this is what makes the Bible different than any book on this planet. The Bible is not a book of men. The Bible is God's book. It was written by men, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible has many human authors. The Bible has one heavenly author. This is why this Bible, God's Word, stands above us as sovereign authority over everything that we think, say, and do. That's why we stand in honor of God's Word, because there is no book like this book. This is not man's book. This is God's book. And the apostles, when they appeal to authority, they don't go into their group sessions and think about what the best thoughts they can think up and then bring that to the group. What do they do? They appeal to Scripture. What does God's Word say about this situation? We would do well to act in the same way. What does God's Word say about this situation? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, verse 25, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Some very interesting words that are used here. That word for Gentiles is the word ethne. If you use the article with it, ta ethne, it means the nations, the ethnicities. In the Old Testament, when that word is used, obviously it would be used in the Greek or the, Sept or the Septuagint Greek, but in the Hebrew Old Testament when David wrote it, that word for ethne refers to people who are not Israelites people who are not Jews. It's a contrasting word to the people who belong to God as his special covenant people. So when David writes, he says, why do the, the Gentiles rage? It means they, they act haughtily, they act arrogantly, they act in insolence, shaking their fist at the heavens. Why do the Gentiles rage? He's talking about the Egyptians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. Why are these nations coming against God's people, Israel? Why do the nations who are not Israel hate the people who are Israel? And why do they come against God's people? Why do the Gentiles rage, act insolently to God. They hate God, therefore they attack God's people. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? They plot in vain. That phrase, plot in vain, literally is translated this way. It means to rack your brain with no avail. Rack your brain with no avail. You just think, 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 and nothing comes out. They beat their head against a brick wall, and they can't hear anything rattling around in here. I remember a person, a brother, when I was a child, I just remember him standing up, and he had a prayer request on a Sunday night, and he had some issues that were going on. The doctor thought he might have a, a brain tumor, and uh, he stood up, and he was asking for a, a prayer request. Would the whole church pray for me as I go for this MRI and this CAT scan x-ray to see what's going on inside? my head. And he came back the next week. He had the MRI, had the CAT scan. He came back and he stood up and says, brothers, I've got a prayer. I've got a prayer report. I've got a praise report to give to the whole church. The doctor did an x-ray of my head and he didn't find anything inside. And he said, brother, God has revealed to you what we've known for a long time. 
Essentially what it means to plot a vain thing is to bang your head against the wall and there's nothing rattling around. They put two heads together and two heads aren't better than one at that point. There's no good ideas for thwarting the works of God. They can't come up with a single thing, not even a few rocks in their skull. This is a mocking psalm. Well, why did the Gentiles rage and they shake their hand insolently at God in the heavens? You know, people shake their fist at the heavens all the time, but you know what they fail to do? They fail to shake the heavens. All they're doing is shaking their fist. They're not budging God's throne. They're not changing his mind. They are not altering his plan. They are cursing God. They are not changing God. You can shake your fist at the heavens, but we will never shake the heavens with an insolent, haughty, arrogant heart. Why did the Gentiles rage, the ethnic rage, and the people's plot in vain? Look at this. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now grasp this very carefully. Think with me. It's very important right here. When David wrote Psalm 2, what is he intending to his original audience? He is talking. He is talking himself as the Lord's anointed. He himself, David, is king over Israel. He is the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2. And when he talks about the Gentiles raging, the nations raging, he is talking about the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and so on and so forth. He's talking about all peoples that aren't Israel. And when they come against the covenant people of God, not only are they opposing God himself, they are also opposing the king that God has set over his people. This is very much a pro-Israel, pro-covenant people psalm. Please hold that in your mind because this will shock you. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city, where is Peter? What is this city? It's Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So now who are the apostles recognizing as the anointed one of Psalm 2? Jesus. Jesus is king over Israel. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, where they, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, look at this list, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, you remember them? They were both rulers whom Jesus sat before in trial. Herod wanted to see tricks from Jesus. Jesus refused. He wouldn't even talk to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate. Pilate was a Roman governor, whereas Herod was king over the Jews. Pilate was a Roman governor. Remember, Pilate tried Jesus twice. And the second time he tried Jesus, he said, I can't find anything wrong with this man. I'm going to release him and set him free. You remember what the rulers of the Jews said? They said, no, release for us Barabbas, a murderer. He was guilty of murder and for insurrection. They said, release for us Barabbas. And he said, what shall I do with this Jesus? And they said, crucify him. So what does Pilate do? Pilate hands Jesus over to be flogged and to be crucified. These were enemies of God, right? That doesn't surprise us that Herod and Pilate are considered enemies of God. He said, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod 
and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles. He's referring there obviously to the Romans. The Romans are the one that crucified him. Crucifixion was not a Jewish practice, it was a Roman practice. Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles, but look at the end of that verse. And the peoples of Israel. Why do the nations rage? Those who are opposed to God. And why do those peoples plot in vain? You see who is included now as outside of the blessing of God? It is those very people that rebelled against Jesus. Even the Jews who rebelled against Jesus are now outside of the blessing of God, according to this. Anyone who does not receive Jesus as Lord and Savior is outside of the blessing of God. Anyone. It doesn't matter how close you are to the epicenter of God's people. If you do not receive Jesus as Lord, you are no better than the Gentiles that rage and the peoples who plot in vain. If you go on and you read verse 3, verse three and 4 of Psalm 2, it says, The Lord is in heaven and he laughs. He holds them in derision. Doesn't change God's plan whatsoever. It just puts you in the crosshairs of his judgment. Look at verse 28. With the understanding that these rulers of the Jews had been plotting and scheming and trying to devise a way to overthrow Jesus, his word, his apostles, and to destroy the very seed of the church. Look at everything that they accomplished in verse 28 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In all of their raging, in all of their plotting, this is why it's in vain. They strive and strive and strive. They beat their heads together for all of their thoughts to put them together and to come against God. And what do they end up accomplishing? They accomplish the purposes of God. It does no one any good to come against their creator. It does no one any, any good to plot against the God who made the heavens and the earth because those who stand against God, they do not change the plan of God. They are a part of the purposes of God. It says they all came together, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel that crucified Jesus. And they did, look at verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I like that word hand. That word hand is the Greek word care. It's actually where we get our word chiropractic from. We're talking about the hand of God, the hand of God that, that flicks galaxies into motion, that sets the stars in their place, that takes the earth and, and spins it on its axis, the hand of God. The hand of God is different than our hand. Our hands are weak, our hands are small and frail, but the hand of God that flicks galaxies into motion is also strong enough to move the hearts and the feet of people. That's what they're referring to here, that your hand, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That word plan, the word boule, it kind of has in reference to it an architectural scheme. Everything has been mapped out. There's a, a schematic 
to everything that takes place, that has or will take place, God has mapped it out. It says to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That word for predestined is the word pro orizo. It's two words. That prefix pro means before. Orizo actually means to set or to fix. Many of you, you've gone on vacations, you've gone to the beach, you've rented a beach house, and there's something characteristic about those beach houses. We were talking about it not too long ago amongst friends. When you go to those beach houses, you see those giant pillars, those beams that go into the ground, they go up 30 or 40 feet, and then the house is built way up off the ground, so if a storm surge comes in, the house is not destroyed. When they take those beams, if, if you think about them, I had a friend I was talking to the other day, and, and they bought a beach house, and he was explaining to me how they set those beams. He says, what you see of those beams is about half of what's actually there. As far as that beam goes in the air is as far as it goes down into the ground most of the time. He said, and they'll take those augers, and they will auger a hole out, and they will put that beam down, and they will jam it down far, far down into the ground, and they'll put all the dirt in it, and that beam is set. And you know the way that beam is set? It is set in order to endure gale force winds. It is set to endure a hurricane so that when the hurricane blows through, the storm surge blows through, guess what? That house has a fighting chance. That's a strong beam that is set in its place. Now you think about that and magnify it to infinitum, and that's what it means for God to set firmly his plan in place. And when does God set it? Pro orizo. He sets it before it ever takes place. All of the wringing of the hands of the nations, all of the gyrating and the tossing and the tumbling and the waves beating of opposition against God's man Jesus and against his church did nothing but accomplish the will of God. The early church was not worried about opposition. They recognize that this world that murmurs against God, this is God's world. They don't have to be fearful in this world because they serve the one who made the world. They can have all boldness and all courage because they serve the sovereign God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And though the Gentiles and the nations rage, it does not change the will or plan of God one single degree in direction. So you know what that frees the apostles and the early church to do? To continue right along on the course that God set them on. That fact of God gives them the boldness that they need. Look at verse 29, whereas we would, before, we would pray for ease of access. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. See what they're doing. You see the way that they're acting. Look upon their threats. Recognize their actions. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants, not ease of access, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
And continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, don't give us ease of access. Give us boldness and courage to overcome difficulty. Lord, don't ease the weight we bear. Make our shoulders stronger to bear it. Give us boldness. That word boldness actually has the understanding of, the, of an openness of attitude that comes from freedom and lack of fear. An openness of attitude that comes from freedom and lack of fear. You think of Peter and John held captive by men at the tip of a spear held captive. And yet they are free in Christ to share the love of Jesus even with their captors. They have a boldness that stems, an open attitude that stems not only from freedom but also from a lack of fear. Well, they can say in their heart, even if these people put me to death, I'm going to go be with Jesus for eternity. Whom shall I fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is God's world. This is God's plan. And he set the beams of his plan long before he ever even created the world. We will not fear and we will not alter our course one single degree. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There is not one iota of doubt in this prayer. They say, God, we know that you are going to continue to do what God does. You're going to continue to make your name known in this world. Lord, give us the boldness to be a part of it. Give us the boldness and the courage to share your word. Look at verse 31. And when they prayed, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. A confirmation that God had received their prayer. So does they say, amen, there's an earthquake in the place. God says, I heard your prayer. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only a confirmation that God had heard their prayer request, it was a confirmation that God had answered their prayer request. Notice that their boldness to share the word of God comes from two sources. It comes from an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God over all things. And it comes from the empowerment of the filling of the Holy Spirit. You know, many of you, I'm sure, you've taken classes at church, evangelism classes, classes that teach you how to share your faith better, what to say in this situation, what to say in that scenario. One of the things that you always encounter when you come to an evangelism class is the question that every one of us asks. How do I over overcome the fear of rejection? How do I overcome the trepidation that I feel in my heart of approaching somebody with the message of Jesus, with the gospel? How do I overcome that? There are all sorts of methods and techniques that people talk about. And in all the evangelism courses that I have ever taken, I have yet to hear this twofold plan, the biblical plan. The biblical plan for overcoming the fear that you feel in your heart of sharing Jesus in a world that opposes him is twofold. One, you need to acknowledge that this world belongs to God, no matter what. This world belongs to God. I am free in Christ to share my faith with anyone because this is not 
secular people's world. This is not Satan's world. This is God's world. And so I'm free to roam around in my daddy's home. I can say what I need to say no matter what. You acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And the second aspect, the second part of that method to overcome the fear is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit that you have the power of God dwelling in you. You know, when you call on the name of the Lord and you are forgiven of your sins, you are born again, the Bible promises that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very same one that raised Jesus from the dead. And if you are a believer in Jesus, he dwells in your heart. He gives you the power and authority to share the gospel even in a hostile world. So you trust in the sovereignty of God and you trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say in that moment. That's how you overcome the fear and the trepidation that you feel in this world. There's also a two-part plan that God gives us for him overcoming opposition in this world. This is the two parts. One, he calls his church to evangelism. He calls his church to go to those people who oppose Jesus and share Jesus with them. Say, whereas once you were enemies of God, whereas once men of Israel, you put Jesus to death, God has raised him from the dead, and he calls all men everywhere to repent and to believe in his name. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. You hear it in Peter. He's overcoming the opposition of this world by calling the ones who oppose God to love God. That's the first part of God's plan. That's the first part of his solution to overcome opposition in the world. The second part of how he overcomes opposition in this world is the return of Jesus. For those people who do not receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, when Jesus returns to this earth, the Bible describes his return and his rule and reign as someone who rules the nations with a rod of iron. At that point, there is no more opposing Jesus. He holds everything under his feet. So you either begin to serve Jesus now or you are held under his feet when he returns. Either way, opposition to Jesus will not continue for eternity. So you and I, as the church of God, as people who are alive and living today, we have the boldness and authority and the right to go anywhere on this planet and to speak Jesus to that person no matter what the consequence because we don't have to fear a single person because we serve the one who made the people who oppose and the one who made the heavens and the earth. We serve despote, sovereign Lord. In a world that opposes Jesus, God's solution is not ease. It is the boldness that comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening today. I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and tune in next time as we study God's Word together.